of that effective means of grace. Uh, the sermon, we're there now. Please turn, if you have your own copy of the Bible, to Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 8. Um, we've been focusing on how Jesus grows the kingdom of God into our lives and out into our world as we've been going through Acts. Uh, something that's been present uh, in our sermons but really hasn't been focused on yet is that Jesus usually does this through disruption and change. The gospel disrupts and upsets the way that we think about ourselves and our neighbors and the world and even God himself. So if you think about this, the common image of God that we have is of an all-powerful creator. And that's obviously true. But in Jesus, that awesome power of God is revealed in humility and gentleness and kindness and death on a cross. So in Jesus, God calls us and saves us not through the raw exercise of power, but through a life of service and a humiliating death. That becomes the way into life with God. That is a disruption of the way that we think about God. But not only does the gospel disrupt the way we think about God, it also disrupts the way we think about ourselves. As fallen humans, we do tend towards two extremes. We tend to think that we are the best or we are the worst, right? We tend we think we are just the greatest person who has ever lived or we think we are just complete trash. And ironically and tragically, we can even switch back and forth between these views, sometimes multiple times in a day. And in order for God to grow the kingdom of God in us and out into the world, Jesus has to disrupt that way of thinking about ourselves. And so Jesus disrupts our pride by revealing our sins and also revealing our limitations, which are not sins, but which together force us to recognize that we are as needy and limited as everybody else. But he also disrupts our despair by revealing our worth. We are sinners, but we are also his creation. We are his image bearers who he loves so much that he entered into the world to save us, telling us that we are fundamentally objects of God's love. I mean, that's what Jesus says. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Those disruptions extend the kingdom further and further into our lives as we learn to think about ourselves correctly in terms of God's own sight of us and how we learn to live in the world. See, and as the kingdom grows in our hearts through those disruptions of how we think about God and ourselves, we then also become people who are free to admit our failures and free to admit our sins and to take responsibility for our, for our, our faults in Jesus because we are forgiven and we know that the damage that has been done by them can be healed because Jesus lives in the world as the savior of sinners. And that's one of the reasons why every Sunday we say, I have nothing to hide I am forgiven in Christ. We don't need to be afraid of our sins and failures and faults. Jesus walks with us as the Savior in the world. And also, and this is a part of our text this morning, as the kingdom grows in our hearts, it also changes the way we want to live with others. Uh, it makes us want to welcome all sorts of different kinds of people, not just people who are like us. It makes us want us to love all these different kinds of people as they are, as God brings them to us. 
and not as we would have them be. And I could go on and on with all of these beautiful things, but, but let's be honest for a section, second. Uh, these disruptions, they, are, they may be beautiful, they are beautiful, but they're also incredibly hard. And they're incredibly scary, especially when all this disruption and change first begins. And that's why peacemaking through intentional care and honest conversation in spiritually mature leaders is so important to Jesus, like we saw in our passage before this last Sunday. And it's also why, as we'll see in our text this morning, the church needs to develop uh, two other gifts that are so important if we are going to live well in the world uh, that the gospel is disrupting. And that is honest, welcoming confrontation that is not afraid of the disruption God brings, and also forgiveness for when people don't respond well to that disruption. Uh, this morning, our passage shows the first martyr, Stephen, facing anger and hatred because of the way the gospel was challenging a particular group's vision of themselves. And we'll see Stephen step forward into conflict with incredible courage uh, because he wants to uh, continue that disruption so that they can meet Jesus. Like we'll talk about, Stephen is practicing one of the most difficult forms of peacemaking, which is telling people the truth in love. Uh, and then we'll see how Stephen responds when that disrupting work is met with violence, how he forgives them. And we're going to talk about what exactly that means. My friends, peacemaking, honest, welcoming confrontation, forgiveness, these are the gifts that we need to see and cultivate here at Grace through God's worship and through a, a rule of life that practices these things. Because let's can we just be honest, since at least 2020, Jesus has been doing some major disruptions, major changes. He's bringing lots and lots of, uh, of, of reworking of people's worlds. And our calling is to learn how to give his gift of peace through the gospel, through hard conversations and forgiveness to that world, which Jesus is disrupting. And so let's read our passage, and then we'll reflect on all this. And just a side note, uh, chapter 7, almost all of it, is Stephen's sermon that will ultimately provoke his martyrdom. Uh, in the interest of time, because if I go long, nursery workers kill me. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to read the setup to that sermon, which is chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Then we're going to skip most of chapter 7, and I'll just read the very final part of his sermon, which is, verses 51 to 60, but I'm going to summarize this sermon later on in the service. So uh, let's read chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and then 7 to 51. Then we'll look at our three points that are there on the board. Uh, enraged by disruption, the gift of hard, welcoming conversation, confrontation, and then the gift of forgiveness. So uh, let's turn now to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Let's hear the word of God. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses 
who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, and now skipping over to verse 51 at the very end of his sermon, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would please... Use the word that we have just read to change us uh, so that we would have faith in Christ and stronger faith that would be conformed more and more to his image so that we would know him and the power of his resurrection and how to walk with you in this world. Uh, Father, we know that all of these things are impossible unless your spirit blesses your word to us. And so we pray now that your spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our story picks up immediately after Stephen and uh, six other men have been ordained as leaders in the early church. We looked at that last week. And uh, we're told in verse 8 that Stephen is doing great wonders and signs among the people. And in Acts, wonders and signs means things like the sick are healed, the lame walk, and the blind see. So Stephen, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, is healing the sick, he's restoring sight to the blind, and he's allowing the lame to walk again. Verse 8 also tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power. To be full of power in Acts means that you are giving people the word of God, and that your words are being used by the Holy Spirit to change hearts. People are listening to you, and Jesus is using you to bring people to the faith. And to be full of grace means that you are being used by Jesus to mature people in the faith. It means that as the church interacts with you, they not only receive God's grace from you, they also learn how to give God's grace out to others well. So putting that together... Stephen is participating in this disruptive work of Jesus that's profoundly uh, changing and shifting families and communities and even identities 
uh, by bringing the healing power of Christ, by bringing uh, the evangelistic power of Christ and the discipling power of Christ to them. Now, it's this uh, disruption of community and identity, though, that appears to have been the reason why Stephen was so viciously attacked. In verse 9, we're told, I'm going to read it again, then some who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilician Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Uh, last Sunday, we met two groups called the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hebrews, you may remember if you were here, were Jews who were born in Israel, and the Hellenists were Jews who were born outside of Israel. And remember, uh, among other things, the Hellenists primarily spoke Greek as their first language, and their culture was not of the uh, Israeli uh, land, while the Hebrews spoke Hebrew as their first language, and their culture was of the Israeli land at that time. The names of these synagogues tell us that these are all Hellenists. Now, something I didn't say last week, Stephen's name and the name of the six other men are all Greek names. They are not Hebrew names. So they are all also most likely Hellenist Jews, maybe even drawn from the synagogue of the freedmen. And that name that Luke makes sure to record for us is very interesting because it tells us a lot about how these members thought of themselves. So most likely, they called themselves the freedmen to tell their fellow Jews, we are the people that God has freed from exile and has returned to the land of Israel. We are the faithful who came back. Unlike our faithless fathers who were sent away, we are the faithful ones who have been returned, and we have endured the sacrifices necessary to return from exile to the promised land. Now, that may not strike you as very sort of emotionally powerful, but if you think of it in terms of this, I'm a family that moved to America to find a better life, then the idea of how important that story is to them, I think probably makes a lot of sense. But then here comes Stephen and his powerful evangelization of their community. And, and the freedmen are watching their members leave their synagogue and go into the church. And they're hearing Jesus through Stephen invite them into a new community with people who do not share their identity, who could not and would never call themselves freedmen. And that's a scary thing. Jesus is calling them to change their friends to change where they worship, and to change what was most important to their self-identification, and to change who they shared their identity with. It's no longer Hellenists who moved back to Israel, but Hebrews, and Roman soldiers drawn from uh, the region of Germany, and Roman aristocrats from Italy, and Africans like the Ethiopian eunuch who we're going to meet uh, next week, and Egyptians, and Persians, and they are now part of your family, Jesus is saying, and you need to love them, and you need to think about them as part of God's family, equal with you, not as subservient to you, but brought in at the same level as you, equal members of God's family, equally loved, equally called by God to love them as he has loved you. See, Jesus has disrupted their entire view of the world. Who I need to love, that's changed. How I need to worship God, that's changed. And then while I'm trying to figure all of this out, right, I'm hearing all of this information that is challenging the very foundations of the way I live and move in the world, my community 
is shrinking. They're stealing my friends and my family away from me. This is a threat to my very life. That's how they felt. And so they get the rest of the church's enemies together, the Sadducees who we've met, the council, the Sanhedrin, and they come up with this plot to silence Stephen by dragging him before the council and uh, getting him in trouble. And that brings us to our second point, which is the gift of honest, welcoming confrontation. Because here we see Stephen lean into the disruption of the gospel, even though it was causing very heated conflict. If you think about the way that we usually respond to conflict, when someone gets mad and they get in your face, you're like, whoa, my goodness, hey, man, I didn't mean anything by it. We back up, we distance, we step away from disruption. These folk are angry, they are enraged, they are violent. Remember, he's bringing them also in front of the people who murdered Jesus, so we know that they are murderers. And he does not step away from disruption. He steps into this very heated conflict with grace and with a profound mercy, not in a way to provoke, right? Stephen doesn't step into this conflict and say, oh yeah, let me tell you about yourself. That's not what he's doing. He enters in in this grace-filled way because he knows that they will only welcome Jesus if they face the disruptive truths of the gospel with honesty. It's an incredibly powerful scene. It's something that incredibly that challenges me very much as someone who does not like conflict. I tend to back away from it. Uh, this is a powerful way of say, showing us the way in which we can actually enter into conflict with grace. Um, so there's an interesting tool I've been using personally lately called a genogram. Uh, and, uh, and a genogram is a way of looking at your family history to see how uh, our past generations have shaped us and how those generations have, have been shaped and have shaped us. It's, it's a way of visualizing the impact of relationships over time, good or bad. It's kind of like a, like a relational family tree in terms of um, passing on behaviors. Uh, and, and that can be very hard to look at. It can be very hard to do because it means that you have to admit things and face things about people that we love and about ourselves that can be very hard to face. Uh, so, for instance, by reflecting on my own genogram, uh, I can tell you that my grandfather's father was a very strong, hardworking individual. He worked very hard to take care of his family, uh, but he was also very emotionally distant, unless he wasn't, in which case it tended to come out in anger, frustration, and what we would today call abuse. Uh, that shaped my grandfather who was incredibly hardworking, persevering, incredibly loving and giving and gentle as he responded appropriately to abuse, but was himself very emotionally distant. And the trauma of World War II wouldn't have helped that either. Uh, and so from there, I can look at myself and I can see the ways that these have affected me. I'm hardworking, I like to think of myself as giving, but I can also be emotionally distant in ways that I know Jesus does not approve of, like my aversion to hugging is probably part of that. It is part of that. And I can also have a temper in the ways that I know Jesus does not approve of. Right? The Bible says that the sins of the parents travel down three and four generations unless they are disrupted by repentance and by transformation and by facing, facing the truth about myself and my family, seeing my limitations and 
my immaturities in myself, seeing the limitations and immaturities in the people I love, that's a disruption. And then learning how to meet those limitations and immaturities and even sins with grace and with mercy and compassion, that's also a disruption to the normal way we want to respond to those things. To trust that Jesus shows these truths, for me to trust that Jesus is showing these truths to me so that I can follow him into a better way of life, that's a hard invitation. It's hard when Jesus shows you something that it's difficult to see so that you can lay it at his feet and follow him. It's scary. To view yourself and understand yourself and those around you as honestly as possible so that you can lay down what's old and dead and put on what's new and alive in Jesus. It's frightening, but it's necessary to spiritual growth. It's necessary to an encounter with Christ, who is God's own truth embodied. Why do I say all this? Uh, Because Stephen's sermon to these synagogues and to the council that ultimately kills him is kind of really in part a verbal genogram. Uh, He goes through their family history And he talks about the way their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers lived and with God and each other in ways that were good and bad. And in that same sermon, he also talks about God's incredible faithfulness in light of these generational patterns of sin. I think trying to show them that you can respond, you can repent and meet God in his kindness, even with your own failures. And in this sermon, he lays out this history of his own people which is a history that Stephen himself would have had to face because these are his people. And he shows how even their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers responded to change with anger, violence, and denial. He talks about how Joseph's brothers tried to kill him when God changed the usual order of inheritance and made the youngest brother the Lord over all of them. He shows how Moses' people rejected Moses with anger and deep distrust as God brought them through a period of change in the wilderness. And he goes on into the prophets and how God responded to change through, God's people responded to change through anger and violence, even killing the prophets in an attempt to keep things the same and not face the truth that God was trying to show them about the way they were living. Stephen is essentially saying, we like to think that we are a people who trust God and that we are the freed men because unlike our fathers, we're faithful. But the truth is we are a people who trust God when we are not in a period of change. But when God brings change, we respond with anger, violence, and denial. Uh, it's, it's a very similar thing to when you have people who've come out of families where there's abuse and they think, I will never treat my children that way. And, uh, and, they, and they don't until they do. And uh, you approach them and you say, hey, like you are actually acting a lot like your father, your grandfather. You are yelling at them. You're screaming at them. You're hitting them. And they say, ah, how can you say that about me? That's the kind of sermon Stephen is giving to his fellow Jews. You're saying you're not like your fathers and your grandfather. You're saying that we are different, but we are acting the very same way. Hence, verse 51 you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so 
do you? See, Stephen is confronting them with the hard truth about their instinctive response to Jesus' message, which is that they've learned from their fathers and their fathers before them that when God brings change, you, gotta, you get angry, you get mad, you get violent, you deny it. And then Stephen is telling them, you know that response is bad. You've confessed that response is bad, and yet here you are, you're acting the same way. And I cannot let you pretend that you are not. I have to step into the disruptive work of God with the truth so that you can see it and, and face it. But that's not all that Stephen says. Uh, this, is, this is so incredibly powerful. In verses 54 to 56, he adds one more just amazing word. I'm going to read these verses again. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Uh, so they're super happy. Uh, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There is an important difference in the Bible between Jesus sitting and Jesus standing. When Jesus is sitting, it is showing that he has finished his work. So after he ascends into heaven, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God the Father because salvation is finished. It's done. No more saving work needs to be accomplished. Wrath is done. Guilt for sin is solved. We are forgiven. Uh, Jesus also sits when he's bringing judgment and announcing final destinies. So that's another opportunity where he sits, not because his work is finished, but because he's going to finish our lives, either in glory or in judgment. But when Jesus stands, it's because he's offering people a place in his kingdom. He stands in order to walk them into life with him. I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says to the church in Revelation. I am here to get you and to bring you deeper into life with me. At the end of this sermon, which Stephen has preached in order to get his fellow friends and family, people he's grown up with in the church, to face reality so that they can repent, Stephen looks up and he sees God's glory not in the sitting Christ, but in the standing Christ. The glory of Jesus offering life and help to those whose lives he's been disrupting with the gospel for their good. And by telling them this vision, Stephen is saying, Jesus not only wants you to repent and believe in him, he is standing ready to walk you into that life with him. The door is not closed. The final judgment is not yet. Jesus is standing ready and able to receive you into his kingdom and to bring you and to walk with you into the new life of forgiveness and love and spiritual maturity that you've been seeing in the church, in me for the last weeks and months as he's walked us through our own challenges and, and difficulties and change and molded us and made us a life of peacemaking and joy and love and justice and fellowship. He is here. He is standing to walk you into a kingdom that has no end. In other words, Jesus gives Stephen an opportunity to see him literally standing behind the gospel invitation of his sermon 
offering them a chance to respond to Stephen's words with repentance and faith in the knowledge that these are not empty words, but the Lord of life himself stands behind them. It's an amazing, it's an amazingly wonderful vision. Now here's my question, having said all of that. Why would Stephen say all of this now? If you believe that their generationally informed response to change will be violence, why do this now in a context where there's a lot of heat and very little light? And the answer is because it's central to peacemaking in Jesus's kingdom. Now I know we're almost out of time and I have one more point to make, so let me just say this. In the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God, he goes on eight verses later, so at the very end of the Beatitudes, to say, do not think that I have come peace, come to make bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. <laughs> a sword that will cause relational friction and tension. So blessed are the peacemakers. I have not to come to bring peace, but a sword. And it sounds contradictory, right? But it's not, because real peace has to begin with the truth. And the truth often requires hard conversations spoken in love. And not in the sense that we probably hear that, where, you know, when, whenever a, a, a Christian comes up to you and says, brother, I have to tell you something in love, you're going to be like, oh, great. <laughs> you're going to be real mean in the name of Jesus. That's not what I mean. By saying something in love, I mean a conversation that provides people a way into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Not a conversation that confronts to end, but confronts with invitations, that confronts with chains, that confronts with a deeper relationship into God's people as well. In other words, the peace of the kingdom comes only by disrupting the false peace of the world and the ceasefires that we erect to protect ourselves from difficult conversations. And what Stephen is doing here is he is practicing one of the hardest skills in peacemaking, a, a skill that very few of us have developed well, uh, which is he's telling people the truth about themselves while inviting them into a real, peace-filled relationship with Jesus and his people. Uh, my friends, this skill is incredibly hard to develop, uh, not only because it takes great maturity and wisdom and restraint, to speak hard truths to people while actually offering them a place in your life. It's also incredibly hard because we know that the truth can cause a lot of anger and, and sometimes even violence. And to have the courage to speak the truth in those conversations is, is very difficult. And you can see the, the violent response in what happens to Stephen, can't we? Uh, they get so angry at Stephen that they stone him to death making him the very first martyr for Jesus in the early church. Uh, but it's in his martyrdom that Stephen gives them a second gift that a mature Christian can give the world. It's in verse 60. I'm going to read that again. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And falling asleep, kids, is the Bible's, the New Testament's favorite way of saying that a Christian has died. Because while your body is dead, your soul is alive to God in Christ. So it's kind of like your body's asleep, but your soul is alive in front of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, our bodies will be raised, our souls will enter our bodies, and we'll live with Jesus 
forever. The Bible wants us to know that whether we're living or dead in the body, we're always alive with Christ. And that's why it says, fell asleep. It's a really, really great phrase. Um, and all I want to say here is this short, but I think amazingly powerful point. Forgiveness means that someone will not be judged because of their sins. That's what forgiveness means. You will not be judged because of your sins. So when Jesus forgives us, it means that we are not judged for our sins. We're set free from judgment. We are released back to life. When Stephen prays, Father, do not hold this sin against them, he's praying for their forgiveness for this sin. Father, don't let this sin enter before your judgment throne. Spare them for justice, from justice for this act. Release them back to life. It's an amazingly powerful word. As he's dying unjustly, he asks God to release them from judgment for it. Now, you could say here that Stephen is simply applying Jesus' prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and that's true. But I think it's even more powerful than that. As someone close to me said this week, when somebody is saying the very words of Jesus, that is a special moment. <laughs> Stephen is quoting Jesus on the cross in, in, in two places, which means that as Stephen is dying for the faith, after calling for faith, he's thinking about how Jesus died to make this faith possible. And he remembers how Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of his crucifiers and wanting to be like his Lord in death as well as in life. He prays in the same way as Jesus did for his persecutors to be forgiven. He literally not just reflects Christ in his life, but in his final words before his soul is brought to Christ in, in heaven. And that's also a powerful gift of peacemaking, isn't it? To, to look at people who are responding to change in the gospel with anger and rage and violence because they are so afraid, and then to pray for their forgiveness is a powerful work of the gospel. To leave the door open into a relationship with Jesus and a door open into a relationship with his church and to want them to live long enough to walk through that door even though you will not be there to receive them that is an amazingly powerful act that helped the kingdom grow out into the world and into the hearts of God's people. It's an incredible gift of peace that can only come from somebody who has had the kingdom of the king of peace growing in their heart through corporate worship and corporate prayer and private prayer and Sabbath rest and all the things we've been talking about through this whole series. So in conclusions, my, friend, uh, my friends, as we seek the growth of the kingdom of God, we need to recognize that it, it comes through disruption and change. We need to recognize that the peace of the kingdom will sometimes require us to have conversations about that disruption and change and to forgive others for their injuries against us as they respond to Christ's disruption poorly. But we can do this. We can grow in this because the risen Christ is standing among us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we very much want to enter into your disruptive work as peacemakers um, who are not afraid of hard conversations and who can forgive angry responses and invite people to walk with you in the new thing that you are doing in the gospel. So Father, please work in us a confidence that you are present in time of transformation and change and difficulty to uh, bring us to new life and to spiritual maturity and to 
Give that not only to us, but to our neighbors. Please work in us the confidence that you are with us and uh, that Jesus is standing among us and that it is the glory of heaven for our Savior to receive us into his kingdom. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.